Psalm 78. During the last four weeks, we've talked about this theme verse of ours, which comes from Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah sets up this amazing contrast between the man who is um, like a shrub, who trusts in man. He's like a, a withered tree in the desert. His roots are grasping for water and nourishment and for strength, but he can't find none. And then there's the man, on the other hand, who doesn't trust in himself, but he trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord's. And he's like a tree planted by the waters whose roots go down deep and whose leaf does not wither. He is not anxious in the year of drought because he never ceases to bear fruit. And we want to be like that man. We want to be like that tree whose roots are sinking deep into the ground. And so, today we lay roots not for rest. That was week one. Not for community. That was week two. Not for transformation and vocation. That was last week. Today we lay roots for future generations. And so, would you stand with me if you're willing and able, and I'll read for us from Psalm chapter 78. This is the word of the Lord. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded to our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and rise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. And verse 70, he chose David, his servant, and took from him, took him from the sheepfolds, and from following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them, and he guided them with his skillful hand. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word, friends, God's word, it stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. Leadership. Spiritual leadership, biblical leadership, is not about the next election. It's about the next generation. In all likelihood, 50 years after we die, we will not be remembered. How does that make you feel? In all likelihood, 50 years after every person in this place dies, we will not be remembered. Will your children tell of your good deeds? Will they build to you a memorial? Will they tell stories of your life around hearth and home? 
Our generation has had no great war, no great depression, no dust bowl. We felt the crash of the oil market in 1989, and we felt the crash of the housing bubble in 2008. We live in an age of big box stores and prescription drugs, and our relationships are mediated through social organizations like the Junior League, or about our country club that we're a part of, or about our church, with real life, community, face-to-face, -face, that meets on the hour. Our children are going to grow up in a world of online stores, potentially of legalized drugs. And relationships will not be mediated through social organizations like the Junior League or like the church. They will be mediated through online relationships that can happen not only on the hour, but any minute of any day. The age to lead is not our father's age. It is our age. And the age for us to begin to do an amazing work for the gospel is not left to others. It's ours. And one of the greatest marks of Christian maturity is when we are able to see that the Lord has called us to lead with all of our gifts and all of our liabilities. And I feel this especially as a pastor because I don't always know how best to shepherd people. And I cry out to my Savior, Lord, help me just to have a faithful presence in their life. And help us to come around his word and to sing of the gospel and to allow the hope of the gospel to marinate our souls together. But in Psalm 78, it's the, as though the, the writers knew exactly what we were going through as a people and they crack open the questions that we have of how to raise our children and they say, you want to know how to establish roots for the next generation? Here it is in Psalm 78. The psalm begins to answer the question by telling us, number one, that we are to be a people who tell of his miracles. We are to teach his ways. And when we do that, two results will inevitably follow. And to do so requires both integrity of heart and skillfulness of hands to be able to do that. And all that we need is offered to us in the gospel to be able to fulfill those callings. And we need to see how important it is. So, lower your eyes to the text and look with me at Psalm 78. We are to be a people who tell of his miracles. Look at verse 4 with me. We will not hide them from their children, but tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Now, Psalm 78 is a historical psalm. It is a psalm that recounts the events of Israel life all the way through the early parts of the Old Testament, which were called the Pentateuch, through Joshua's campaign, all the way through into the reign of David, the king. And the psalm tells us these things in order for us to be able to tell coming generations of the amazing work that he has done in our hearts and in our lives as a people. And the story of Israel in the Bible does not belong only to the Jewish people. It belongs to you, Christian. God was faithful to our forefathers in the Old Testament, and he's going to continue to be faithful to you. And think about the ways and the stories of, that have shaped your own life and marked your own life. What are the stories that we tell as God's people today? Do we tell of the day when, when we prayed over Anna Keltner as a church and, and the Lord delivered her from her cancer years ago when we were just a very small church? 
Do we tell of the days when, when we were able to go and, and grieve with Lori whenever she lost her father and then grieve again with her just in recent days when she lost her mother? We'll be able to tell of the days when those of us who've gone through extremely difficult times in our home when we came around one another and supported each other, even when we didn't have anything to say, we were just there together. What miracles do you tell to your family of what God has done? Three times God describes the deeds with very careful precision. He says in verse 4, tell of his glorious deeds. His, in Hebrew, it's his otherworldly deeds. It's deeds worthy of praise, worthy of awe and wonder. Of his might, his Zeus in Hebrew, of his power, of his strength, of his fierceness when he showed up, when we thought we were lost. Of the times when he did wonders. Wonders are things that were thought to be too hard, too unusual, too miraculous. What are the stories that you tell around your hearth and your home? What stories do you tell often? When do you tell those stories? Do your lives complement those stories and reinforce the truthfulness of them? When you're face to face, without interruption, without screens to distract you, what stories do you tell? And even more, what stories do you tell by the events that you attend? What events do you never miss? And why do you not miss those? What commitments in your family are secondary? And why are those less important? What does your family do that everyone enjoys? What, what lessons are learned from that enjoyment? What victories do you celebrate together? What, what burdens in the last year have you bared? What sacrifices have you shared? These are the stories that shape our children's lives. Because no matter how hard you might try to achieve a certain goal you have for your family, it is the rhythm and the undercurrent of the liturgies of the ordinary stories that you tell that shape your children. What are those? What fears regularly visit you? And why are those fears legitimate or realistic? What days of the year does your family particularly look forward to the most? And why those days? Let's take it further and go a little deeper. How do you choose to let off steam? Decompress. Recharge. What space do you provide God to speak to you in the warp and wolf of your week? What memories did you make this month with others? Who are you getting to know better? And who are you letting get to know the real you? Brothers and sisters, what is greater than being remembered by your children? What is greater than our own financial comfort and security? What is greater than our own personal peace? What is greater than the idols of our heart? What is greater is the good news that our children have a father who loves them, who cares for them and shepherds them, and who is faithful to them even when they are not faithful to him. The good news of the gospel is... Not that they have to perform for you as parents or live up to your expectation. The good news of the gospel is for them that even on their worst day, they have a father who sings over them with their love. 
and throughout the liturgies of our life, it is our call and our duty as Christians together to tell the ordinary stories of what God has done in the past so that children today can understand those and make them not the stories of their parents, but make them their stories. Just like the Holy Spirit is working in us in this age and in this day and in this place for him to remind us again that those stories that we heard about God's faithfulness to our parents, those stories are also ours. And why are you struggling so much right now? Why are we going through the things? Maybe it's because the Lord is trying to instill in you the deeper stories beneath the stories you're trying so hard to write. That He is still faithful to you. And He's using those circumstances or in your life to help show that to you. Why is the Roots campaign so important for us? It is not about finances. It is about the fact that we hold up idols and we worship them and that we spend money on things without even thinking about it that control us. Our money is not what we worship. It just identifies what it is that we do worship. I don't think twice about buying a theology book. Not twice about it. There's always a good reason to do it. But I have to think twice about giving my money away. It takes some effort. Why? Because I have an idol that I want you to know that I'm bright I want you to think, well, Blake's got lots of books, that he's smart. And this approval idol reigns in my heart, and I have to tamp it down. Money is not what I worship, but I spend my money on things so easily that I identify what my real idols are. And if I'm not careful as a father, even as a minister, I can so easily fall into the habit of letting my children believe that beneath the catechisms we try to teach our children, beneath the Westminster Confession of Faith, all of that undergirded by God's holy word, my real Bible is whether or not people like me. How am I doing in the face of public opinion? How well am I shepherding people at Trinity? How well am I loving my bride? What is the real source of authority in Scripture in your life? That is what Psalm 78 is trying to get into us. What are the stories of miracles that you tell? And what the author of, of, uh, of Psalm 79 wants us to recognize is that in verse 5, he lays it out there for us. He says that our God, the God of miracles, the God of wonders, is a God, first of all, among all the gods of the world, he's unique and he's different. Why? Verse 5. Because he acts. Notice what it says. He established a testimony in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel. He commanded our fathers. He did the work. I, Isaiah was blown away by this when he got to chapter 64. He, of course, he didn't have chapters or verses, but when he's writing, he, he says, what I can see or ear can hear or who can perceive a God who, like this who loves his people well, who is faithful to this covenant? Yes, but Isaiah says, who can perceive a God like this who acts on behalf of those who wait for him? God is a God who acts. In the very beginning, he spoke into the tohu vabohu of the void and the wasteland of creation, and he acted. And then in the incarnation, didn't he? He sent his son to be for us, the true and greater David, verse 70 through 72. 
the one who had perfect, perfect integrity of heart and perfect skillfulness of hand. And he came down to earth in the incarnation to be for us what we could never be. Jesus himself left the treasures of heaven in order for us to become his treasure. Like the, the Lord who made every tree and blade of grass you see at these windows, who made you, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, he came to earth. He had everything that you dream of having. He had everything and more, and yet he gave that up because he didn't have one thing. You. He loves you so much that he gave up the expansive treasure of heaven in order to win you back. And he did that with perfect integrity of heart and perfect skillfulness of hands. What stories do you tell your children? How do you motivate them to take risks for the kingdom? Oh, I know you'll help them take risks to go into debt to pay for college. We don't think twice about that. We let them load up on college debt. That's a risk. But what kind of risk do you let them take for the kingdom? How are you teaching them to take those kinds of risks? We let them take risks in sports. They may risk losing. We let them take risks in a relationship. They may get rejected. We let our children be exposed to all kinds of risks. But how are you helping them walk in risk in the relationship with Christ? How are you helping them to understand that the gospel economy is not the economy of the world that you learned your sophomore year in college? The gospel economy works totally different. That the way to grow in the gospel is the way to repentance. And when you're able to be a people who tell of his miracles, you will be able to teach his ways because they will see in us as parents a sense of integrity of heart, which is undoubtedly the greatest gift you can give to your children. The specifics of your life may be forgotten, but 50 years down the road, they will remember you as a woman or a man who is a person of integrity. And the only way that we can be people that are whole like that is if we continue to go back again and again to the gospel. We must be people who tell of his miracles and we must teach his ways. Secondly, all of our teaching must be centered on the gospel. Our children are asking questions of us that are very intimidating, aren't they? There's lots of new questions. And every generation faces these kinds of questions. And because think times are moving for us so quickly, it seems as though the questions are cascading over us like waves on the beach. And it's hard for us to catch our breath and catch up. But we are to be a people who help our children stay centered on the gospel so that when they're asking questions about the implications of the gospel regard, in regards to sexuality or in regards to authority or in regards to particular kinds of behavior, we are people who want to die on Mount Zion, not die in the hills of Galilee. We want to be people who take our children back to the notion of justification by faith alone, to draw them back to the finished work of Jesus Christ, to help them understand that God has called us in grace to be His, and He's opened our heart to provide access to the Father through His finished work. And then that so shapes our life that it reorients our authority structure. Because if we go after secondary issues as parents, we try to teach his ways beginning with secondary issues, and we miss the primary calling of our life to be centered around the gospel, you will wear yourself out as a mom and dad, and you will be like that person on the beach who just cannot get their footing as the waves cascade over you again and again and again. Anybody feel like that? I feel like that. 
And my oldest child is 11. As we teach his ways, we have to be people who lead with our integrity, who stay centered on the gospel. And this may lead us to have our integrity challenged. You know, in church history, many of you know that it wasn't always the Roman Empire who persecuted Christians. Persecution uh, came not so much from the emperors themselves as it came from the local governors and the popular hatred of Christians. Christians began by the 2nd and 3rd century to begin to be socially marginalized, not quite frankly, unlike we're beginning to see happen again in our day. When they wouldn't participate in the Colosseum because they had a high dignity for human life. When they chose not to abort their children, but they took in the children off the street and people saw them and they, to justify their own actions, began to throw out the self-righteousness card at the Christians. Where Christians did weird things like, like heaven for, meet in a tent in 2018 when there were perfectly good buildings in the world. They, in the early church, they began to come around the table where people looked at them from the outside and thought they're cannibalistic. They're partaking of the body and the blood and they couldn't understand it. We will have our integrity challenged as a people, and that's okay. Because that is part of our story, too. We're challenged in our ethics because we will be viewed as those who act differently. We will be those who may be socially marginalized in some important ways. But those are the things that make the stories of our life up. And that is where we are, especially to be able to tell stories to our children of how God acted, particularly in the times when we were not in the majority. And we were able to act with integrity of heart and skillfulness of hands, even when it cost us something. How do we prepare now for our children to be able to live in that world? What stories do you tell and do you deeply help imprint upon their hearts and in their minds? If we tell these stories, the psalm says that there are two results that will follow. In the ancient world, when a king announced that he was coming to a village or a farm, people would begin to tell the deeds of the king. The king, this king who's coming, once led our small village into battle and we were far outnumbered. But we triumphed over our enemies, and this king is coming. Let's celebrate, and let's get ready for his return. They told stories, and two results began to happen. The next generation heard these stories, and they set their hope in God. Verse 7. They set their hope in God. They heard the stories that their parents told them. Those narratives shaped and molded their life, and they set their hope in Christ. In God. The second thing that happened was that the next generation remembered the gospel and they lived in light of it. The next generation is going to remember the baseline stories of our life. And they're going to remember those times when parents, in the midst of difficult times, were allowed and gave permission to their children to cry and to repent and to mourn the sadness of the world. And they're going to remember the times when their parents celebrated and rejoiced the amazingly beautiful things of the world. My, my own story comes out of seeing my parents repent. Your children's brains actually grow more neurons when they see and they hear you repent to them. Did you know that? 
physiological changes happen in your children and spiritual changes happen in your children. I was telling the story this week to a friend over lunch that years ago, 30, uh, 30 years ago, uh, at a church service with a couple thousand people in it, at the end of the service, the preacher said, um, now we're going to have a, a, a gentleman in our community, people knew him, um, come and share a word to the congregation. And this man came before the church, packed out. And he whittled his wedding ring in front of his people, his friends in this church. And he said, 18 months ago, I almost lost the greatest thing ever given to me outside of my salvation. And I had an affair on my wife. And I'm here to publicly ask your forgiveness and to hold me accountable and to help my family heal. And you can imagine the emotion in the room. By the time he got those words out, families, the family was running down the center aisle of this church to embrace this man who had already reconciled, of course, with them, but they didn't know he was going to do this publicly. And who bumbling behind two older brothers was, was the youngest child of that family? Amazed that his dad would have the audacity and the integrity to make such a confession before people. And that experience deeply impacted me because I was that little boy. I was that youngest child of that family, seeing his father practice repentance before the church, and seeing how the integrity of a father can so shape a young man that it totally turned his wheelhouse upside down. The whole way I understood success in the world was to see the vacuous nature of how money makes, can make people so amazingly lonely. And that the relationships that God provides for us in the church are to be an incubator of authentic community for which we were created and for which we so ardently long. It doesn't get any better than this, friends. Everything is in place for our church to be the kind of place for us to thrive, story by story, person by person. But it's the narratives that shape our lives that are to dictate the way that we raise and shape and care for our children. Look out these windows. What narratives are going to shape the children in the generations to come? Will we be able to tell our children the story of how we met in a tent on November the 11th, 2018, long before there was a building on this property, and how we didn't know how we were going to come up with it? The, the, the amount of money we had to raise just seemed extraordinary. We had no idea how we were going to do it. But every family together sacrificed. And was it easy? No. But we did it together because we had a common vision, not just for ourselves, but we had a common vision for the next generation. That they would then pass on the truth. They would tell of God's faithful and wonderful deeds. They would teach his ways to their children. And that they and their children would remember the glorious deeds of the Lord. And they would walk in his ways. And they would center their lives also around the finished work of Jesus Christ and the gospel. And they would provide a haven for the people who were so surprised that the church could be so amazingly glorious in a world where people are running out of the church. What could we be together? What narratives are you willing to tell to shape the lives of your children? How would you be willing to allow the Holy Spirit to challenge the narratives that you actually do communicate? Would you talk about these things in community group? Would you allow the, the Holy Spirit to challenge 
the storylines that our children pick up from us. And would you allow them to be reshaped yet again around the finished work of Christ? Because Christ has done for us everything we need to rest content in his finished work. And he does not promise us that we'll have the lives that you imagined for yourself when you were 20. He's going to give you something far better than that. He's going to give you himself. And in doing so, he's going to give you a picture, not of some landscape that may one day house a church building, but he's going to give you a picture of what you and your family are going to be like in glory, where you for billions of years spend worshiping him and intimate relationships with your family and your friends that are far beyond your imagination today. Let's be a church. It's not about the next month or the next election or the next decade. Let's be a church that's about the next generation. Let's be a church that's about the finished work of our Savior together. Let's pray. Father, we come to you not knowing what tomorrow holds, but we come to you knowing that you provided all that we need for life and godliness today so that our liturgies and our patterns of our life might shape us to lead well for tomorrow. Jesus, would you contour our hearts around your finished word? Would you so shape us as a people that our chief identity becomes not who we are, where we live, what we can provide, but our chief identity becomes we are sons and daughters of the King. And that would make us, Father, we pray, amazingly generous amazing storytellers, amazing men and women of integrity, amazed by your grace. Your riches at Christ's expense, Father. Thank you for the good news of the gospel which shapes us as a people. May it do so evermore, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our call to worship in giving this morning comes from Psalm 96, verses 8 and 9. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy splendor. Tremble before him, all the earth. Let's go before our Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many gifts that you give us, earthly gifts and heavenly gifts of our salvation and of material goods and possessions. We pray that you would make us generous, that we would hold our hands open to give out to you as you've given to us. Please take these gifts and use them for the furtherance of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.